Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, my name is Dr. Mary Ann Dewan, and I am the Santa Clara County Superintendent of Schools. I serve as a co-chair for Silicon Valley Reads. Silicon Valley Reads is a countywide community engagement initiative in partnership with the Santa Clara County Library District and San Jose Library that aims to unite the community of Santa Clara County through the joy of reading. This is the 18th year of Silicon Valley Reads, and our theme is connecting. While the pandemic has forced us to keep physical distance from one another, this year's theme allows us to connect virtually, not only through a love of books and reading, but through cooking, the arts, nature, and more. For more information about the 2021 titles and events, please visit www.siliconvalleyreads.org. Thank you, and we look forward to connecting with you. Be well. Welcome to Silicon Valley Reads. Started in 2003 as a one-book, one-community program, Silicon Valley Reads has grown to become a thriving community engagement initiative throughout Santa Clara County, including books and events for all ages. Presented by the Santa Clara County Office of Education, the Santa Clara County Library District, and the San Jose Public Library, Silicon Valley Reads gives our community new perspectives and understanding of important, relevant issues and encourages people to read, think, discuss, and engage. The theme for 2021 is Connecting. We are adjusting to living our lives in a pandemic with more solitude than ever before. This year, we are focused on finding our commonalities and talking about the things that bring us comfort and joy. We've selected 10 books to encourage everyone to find the connections that are uniquely meaningful to them, whether through relationships, food, nature, art, music, animals, or books. We hope you enjoy today's presentation. I am so excited to welcome you to today's discussion with Always Home author, Fanny Singer, and her mother, renowned chef, Alice Waters. In a conversation with award-winning food and wine writer, Carolyn Jung, Fanny will talk about her unique childhood growing up amidst the sounds and smells of Chez Panisse in Berkeley. Always Home connects us to this dynamic relationship between mother and daughter through their stories and recipes and we are honored to connect with them live in this special virtual conversation. Please join me in welcoming Fanny, Alice, and Carolyn. Thank you so much, Dr. Dewan, for that wonderful introduction. I am so honored to be here for this event, which is near and dear to my heart, as well as to my stomach, of course. Um, when I was a senior in high school, my friends and I saved up our money for one of our very first fancy grown-up restaurant meals. And of course, it was at Chez Panisse. And little did I know that years later, I would write a story about that restaurant that would win a James Beard Award. So I'm thrilled to have these two people here today who are synonymous with that landmark. And I'd love to introduce them to you now. 
first, of course, the founder, the guiding light, the champion for decades of local and sustainable and organic. Alice Waters coming to you from Berkeley. Delighted to be here. <laughs> and her daughter, who is the co-founder of Permanent Collection, a, a lifestyle retail site, as well as the distinguished author of the memoir, Always Home, which is doing so well since it debuted last year that it's coming out in paperback any day now. So Fanny's coming to us from Los Angeles. Welcome. It's so nice to be here, Carolyn. Thank you. So I wanted to start by asking you, I know that you've mentioned that you were approached years ago to write a book like this, but you said no at the time. So why was now the right time to do it? Well, I think we sort of have to back up for one second and just consider the fact that we're actually almost on the eve of the publication date, a year anniversary, which is just boggling to think of. It was just around this time last year that I moved in with my mom thinking I was going to be there for a couple of weeks and then ended up being there for 10 months or thereabouts. So um, it's just kind of a wild near landmark uh, moment in this sort of arc of this book's uh, life. Um, and it's, it's kind of, um, it's kind of wonderful to revisit again after so many events that we did right at the opening to be here to sort of look back at this year of how this book has existed and sat with people in this time, um, which was, of course, not what I was expecting at all when it was published. Um, but to your question, um, yeah, I was I think I was it was when I was 18. I just started college and um, uh, I can't remember what it was a big publisher in New York. There was an editor there who thought, you know, there's a story there, you know, about the restaurant and about my mom. Um, and I remember trying to write a couple of pages, you know, sort of thinking like, oh, maybe I can put together a book proposal. But I was just way, 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 way too young to be sort of thinking about the subject of any distance. And, um, and really, this project came into being um, only on the back of another little project with my mom, which was a book called My Pantry which we uh, published together, which is a little recipe book that was almost an appendix to her Art of Simple Food books. Um, and I was, I was still living in England at the time and we were communicating at that point, it was pre-Zoom. So we had, you know, we were just on Skype and having phone calls and collaborating on this project um, at a distance. And then we went on book tour together and it was that experience of kind of being embedded with her in this in this project and then also physically on the on the tour that made me really think about how much at that point you know I've been living away from home for a long time and I've been in England for close to 10 years sort of thinking about what that relation how that relationship could be reevaluated from a greater distance was it daunting for you? I mean, here you are laying bare your life for everyone to read, and not only that, but writing about your own mother. Um, kind of yes and no. In a way, the, the stories flowed very naturally. The rubric that I set up for myself was only to write around food, you know, to not kind of explore every 
nook and cranny of my existence. I mean, also because I didn't imagine that that would necessarily be interesting to a reader. And so I felt like narrowing it to focus around um, those experiences that really had food at, at their core felt like a good way to not get into the, you know, sort of weeds a little bit of more intimate things. Um, and at the same time, like be able to speak to so much of the relationships and so much of how we communicate to each other is in fact through food. There was a point at which my editor was like, Fanny, I mean, you have to explain that like your parents were divorced. So, like there are a few like, key things that you've omitted here that you are going to have to say something about because otherwise like it's really unclear, you know, all this other material that sits on the in the margins. So um, so it's in there a little bit, but it still felt this somehow felt like a sort of safe way of looking at this relationship. And it almost let me be more intimate in those accounts because I had these boundaries. So Alice, did you, did you have, have final, final veto, veto rights on anything, anything in the book? The book? <laughs> Actually, she did give me final veto rights. As she should, right? <laughs> but she argued her point. And, and most often I gave in. Uh, there was only one little question, but I think that what, what really was so beautiful is um, the fact that Fanny's and my friend Brigitte Lacombe was photographing us at the end of when the book was pretty much um, finished, and that was so special to have her um, sort of uh, put us together, you know, lying on the back lawn, like we used to always do when we came home from church. We'd just come into the house, run out to the back grass and throw ourselves down. And she took a picture of that. And it, it made it feel like um, a lot of our experiences were, were coming alive again, especially the very special memories of going to Domaine Tampier in France and, and our love for the proprietress, Lulu. So sorry about her passing recently, uh, too. She was only 101. <laughs> no, she's under two. Wow. A <laughs> hundred and but she had that joie de vivre. She never lost it. She had it her whole life. And I think Fanny so beautifully captures her spirit and uh, really tries to communicate why so many people around the world loved her. I mean, really felt part of her family. You know, I always say I was her best friend. Fanny says she was her best friend. And uh, and then we talked to other people, and they felt that way too. But she gave herself to you. She was so curious about what you were doing. And she knew everything that Fanny was doing. You know, at 100 years old, she's following her on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> so when you read the book... Were you surprised by anything in terms of 
Um, it, it made you see that Fanny saw something in a different way that you didn't know about or that she felt something that you didn't realize. Absolutely. You know, I knew all of those stories in a way, but it, it felt like someone else was in the room. But I, I looking at the same table setting and the same people at the table, but she saw something that I didn't see. And so it was all brought back to me in the most, I don't know, very uh, touching way. I mean, some things she saw <laughs> uh, made me laugh. She has a great sense of humor. And some of it around me making fun. But that's what daughters do, right? <laughs> is that what daughters do? Very aware of my determination. <laughs> and uh, I remember one of the first stories, she read it to me. And just to see whether I would go for it. And uh, why don't you tell that story about you asking me what my favorite colors were, Fanny? Uh, yes. Now, the opening, the opening chapter really is um, about my mom's favorite colors, which are maroon and chartreuse, which are not, I think, the typical answers when someone... Uh, is giving, you know, sort of shorthand, like red, green, you know, my mom would always say maroon and chartreuse. And I loved asking her that question. Um, and so it opens with this, this kind of, um, it's in a way, it's almost articulated as a philosophy, because my mother's sort of love of these colors became also a kind of aesthetic um, approach. I mean, if you go into our house, you will not see uh, many hues that uh, stray from the darker purples and browns and maroons. Um, and in fact, in these last 10 months, when I, when I was living with her, if ever there was like a brightly colored garment left downstairs, because my the bedroom that was my childhood bedroom was upstairs, I would see it like scrolled away behind a door, you know, just there was a certain kind of aesthetic rigor that could not be broken. So I do get into the details of how that can sort of verge on the kind of obsession, but which is, I also grant a really huge and important part of how the aesthetics and environment were considered around the restaurant and also at the edible schoolyard. And so that, that chapter, I think, is, or that's part of the chapter called, or leads into a chapter called Beauty is a Language of Care, which is very much about that kind of. I love that part in the book where you talk about how, um, aesthetics and the look and the beauty how your mom is that matters to your mom so much and I mean I still remember when I think I sat down with an interview for the first time with you Alice in the dining room of Chez Panisse and it was off hours and you had someone put a tablecloth on the table before we sat down. And I was just so taken with that. Like nobody else I know would think of doing that. And that just speaks to um, how important uh, a sense of place is for you. So speaking of that, Fanny, um, I know you talk in the book about um, the tea parties that you had underneath the tables in the dining room and how you grew up where your mom would take you into work and snuggle you into a giant salad bowl or soup pot um, while she went oh, on and did her work in the kitchen. Um, 
When did you kind of know that Chez Panisse was this special place, this restaurant that was such an icon for so many people? Um, did you grow up knowing this or did you kind of think every place, every other restaurant was like this out there? You know, I mean, I'm trying to sort of access where my mind was at when I was little, but I think it was sort of both. I mean, at once felt very familiar. You know, I speak about it as a kind of second home. And there was a sort of sense of of ownership, not in a, in a material way, but, you know, ownership of that, of the space within there, that it felt so familiar that I could take care of myself even when I was at the restaurant. I knew how to get a little snack off the where the vegetables and fruits were out in the breezeway and sometimes a naughtier snack, like sneaking a little corner off the galette round that was in the walk-in but just how to, you know, be in that space. And I think that was, that was by virtue of my having actually physically been in that space from when I was a baby. But of course I was aware, you know, especially as I was coming into consciousness and there with my mom when I was six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10. And especially when she wrote the children's book, Fanny at Shapenese, when I was about eight, where I was definitely aware of it as an institution, you know, like that there were people who were regulars, but there were also people always every night coming as their pilgrimage, you know, and it was so special for them to see my mom in the restaurant. And so there would, so if we were sitting there, there would often be people coming to sort of pay homage or say hello and and I was I was keenly aware of it being unusual, even within restaurants. You know, it wasn't like any other restaurant. I had some other friends who grew up in restaurants, and they were nothing like Chez Panisse. You know, Chez Panisse was really stood apart in that regard. Um, and for many of the reasons that I do sort of uh, speak about in the book, which is which range from the extent to which the, the restaurant is clad in copper and every single surface so that, you know, offensive materials like stainless steel are at least kept at bay or revealed to a minimum, but also that the restaurant's uh, community is a family, you know, which my mom has always called la famille panis, you know, and that sense of community, that sense of familial bond really made it feel like I was part of really a big family that would always look out for me and that there was, there was someone, you know, to take care of, you know, everyone, there was always a kind of network and a sense of reciprocity um, and caretaking that defined the environment there that really did make it also very unique. Well, I knew that Fanny really got along with the pastry chef, um, Mary Jo. And so I hired her to babysit for Fanny. And she uh, didn't have any children of her own. And she just took that responsibility on and uh, is a kind of artist in the kitchen, but she loved to, to amuse Fanny back there. I mean, just putting, putting, raspberries on her fingertips <laughs> and you know it's just something more than just keeping an eye on her and I I really love that I could find these people within our family of pennies that would keep and you know take care when I wasn't there 
I think you're going to make us all jealous now that we all wanted babysitters who were pastry chefs when we were young. Not very many babysitters had pastry, and not very many children had babysitters who could make things like um, handmade lollipops, which we which we made <laughs> together. So, and Mary Jo is still the chef at the pastry chef at oh, the restaurant. Wow. She was there was some years where she had a little restaurant of her own, and she's now back in the fray. And I'm still in touch with her all the time. And, you know, it's, it's just, and that, and she feels like family to me, you know, um, which is a very special, was a special gift that I had that sort of relationship both within the restaurant and also without. So Fanny, I know you, you've talked a little bit about this in other um, interviews and people are always fascinated about this. And for people who haven't read the book yet, can you describe the lunches your mom used to pack for you? <laughs> what were those like? Ah, uh, yes, the perennial question, but always a good one because they it is it was a unique uh, arrangement. Um, in the book, I sort of talk about like the I I can't totally remember the moment at which things got really sort of off as sort of off the rails or a more steroidal version of lunch, you know, because I did have a sort of paper bag normal sandwich I think in preschool kindergarten, um, but when I was when I started to go certainly um, in middle school and then when I started to go to high school, which required an hour long BART BART train journey to and from. Uh, high school, um, my mom would pack these very elaborate lunches so that I wouldn't have to eat in the cafeteria at high school. Um, that included that were, I mean, truly like I, the zoom window can't even accommodate the size of these things. They were like these really tall insulated, almost like weekender bag things that had ice packets in them and multiple sort of Tupperware compartments um, that kept everything separate and always other little accoutrements. So there was like real, real silverware in there, um, napkin always. Um, and then there was always a salad, which was undressed. So There's like a tiny container, uh, that had vinaigrette, sometimes two, if my mom was not sure which one I'd like more. <laughs> um, especially if one had anchovies in the, in it, which I really disliked at the time, she would always like give me an alternate and just sort of encourage me to try the one with anchovies anchovies first usually some delicious little fruit messed one which was kind of a fruit salad very quick fruit salad but with lots of orange juice on it to sort of macerate and bring out the flavor and then um the most aromatic part of lunch was always the garlic bread which would be toasted freshly in the morning and rubbed with garlic which if anything is what um, made me both a kind of pariah on the bar train, but then really popular at lunch because it was delicious, like gloves of olive oil, really good bread. Um, and then my mom had, which is in the book as an illustration, my mom had this list of instructions for, um, which was presented to me, I should say, on my 21st birthday, I think, um, from by, by a friend who had been in who had been entrusted with my care when I was, I think, 12 or so. And it had many detailed instructions about sort of general lifestyle things and rules around time, amount of time I was allowed to talk on the phone or what type of videos I could rent at the, uh, at the video store back in the day of VHS. Um, and then there was a very elaborate, like fully diagrammed section devoted to the different con size containers and which goes into each container. I mean, the kind of like detail that truly I think 
uh, I was, uh, it was an unusual thing to be presented with as a, as a babysitter. And I might be the only kid who really had, at least in that, at that moment, you know, in the early nineties, that level of care going into lunch. So I think we all want to know, did you just ever want to go to town on a bag of Doritos or a Big Mac instead? Um, you know, honestly, never. It's not that I never tried. I, it's not that I never tried any junk food. I mean, I certainly, I had, all my peers were trying that stuff or some of them liked it. But the reality, I think, is that if you are presented with something that is both delicious and very good for you, which is the whole premise, really, of the edible schoolyard, you want to eat that, you know, it's like you don't, if you don't rebel against it. It's like you actually thrill to those flavors and to that sensation. And in my case, it was also very clear that it was through food that my mother was communicating to me how much she loved me. And I could feel that quality of care sort of transmitted in what I was given, you know, for lunch. And because there was usually also a little bundle of herbs to smell or a little flower in there that was fragrant and little, you know, these little nosegays and sometimes little notes. And, you know, I mean, I, I know it's more work to do that, those things. And I just, and yet I don't think, um, I don't think it, it's in any way sort of overlooked by the kid, even if they don't verbalize at the time their appreciation. I think it's very felt, you know, on a, on a sort of spiritual level that the parent is loves them and is showing them that. And so there was never a desire really to rebel in that sense. I mean, there were certainly things I liked that were sort of outre in our house, you know, like had a, I had a real sort of thing for sour candy, <laughs> but you know, I mean, it wasn't something that I like ate in abundance or, or discarded my lunch to you know eat instead. So I have to say whatever she did worked. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Proof to send the pudding in the book. So Fanny, did you ever want to be a chef or a restaurateur? Uh, no, not at all. <laughs> I mean, who knows what'll happen, I guess, you know, I feel like it, the future still feels very open, but, and I love to cook. And I should say, you know, the book is not just a memoir. It's also full of recipes. So for anyone who hasn't read it, um, there's, there are dozens of recipes that relate to the stories. Um, but I, I don't know. I think I watched how much it took to do a restaurant the right way. And it felt like it had to be a pretty singular passion. Um, and there were other things that I was really driven by and interested in doing. And obviously one of them is writing and the other is art history. I have a PhD in art history and I, I really, um, felt always very free and without, and not an ounce of pressure from my mom to put, uh, to get involved in food and to, you know, pick up the mantle or anything. So um, there was no pressure, but there was no desire, at least when I was younger. Um, and at the same time, I kind of can't imagine a world without Shea Benice in it. So I, you know, there's always a little bit of like an open door around, like, would I ever be involved in the restaurant in its future? It feels possible, but I, I don't construe or think of myself as a chef, per se. So Alice, are you, knowing what you do about the business, are you glad that Fanny didn't pursue that path, at least yet? Well, I think she has so many interests. And I know that during the beginning of the restaurant, certainly the first, <laughs> the first 30 years, it was a really 24-7 um, 
almost being there just all the time and thinking about about food and how to how to you know work the the kitchen so that everybody collaborated together and it was a big challenge that took all of my time and i've always thought of Fanny as having just so many different interests it's not that she couldn't contribute to the restaurant in a minute but it's 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 being there first thing in the morning and it's leaving in the night and uh that's why she was i mean i was so lucky to have so many people that were taking care of her when she was young and it does take a village and i thought about it so much about how uh, we should take care of children and feed them as a, a group of friends i always wanted to have you know one night share my friend sharon would be cooking for all of us and the next night maybe you know another friend and the the burden wasn't always on one person because it's very it's very intense to to have that kind of pressure and it's why I've, i'd love the you know fanny could make things when she was eight and set the table all of that and i think it's really really important that everybody cooks in the family and the you know that you pass it around to to different families so fanny um you have had um children's books written about you there was cafe fanny of course named for you i mean one of the books was even made into a play um when you were growing up was it all sort of at times a bit much to take not you know not really until i do write about this in the book when when the children's book that came out when i was 8 was turned into a play when i was in high school i was a little uh less pleased about that because you know it was something that was in fact reviewed in the San Francisco Chronicle oh. and not that favorably in fact the the headline was Fanny Laughs Spice and um and I arrived at high school to have you know several copies of the article taped cruelly to my locker so i mean in jest but you know it was high school i was like i was much more aware of sort of you know my mother and also by that point you know when i was a teen my mom's celebrity was much more visible and palpable and and things were changing too as the internet age was um making more visible um news items and more news is proliferating across the world around not just um you know the restaurant but also the edible schoolyard which she started when i was in middle school so i had friends at that school when she started the program and i was sort of embarrassed but also you know sort of cautiously you know optimistic i guess like thinking you know maybe my friends would be into it and um there was that little sort of i guess tender age but i mean you know as a kid when you get to go to a restaurant and the chef comes out and says hello and basically looks at you and 
and just speaks directly to you and asks you what you'd like to eat for dinner that night. And you get to customize your dinner I mean, with such so little awareness of just how unusual and exceptional that experience is for anyone else. You know, I, I mean, I definitely was spoiled rotten in that context. It's not something I was ever aware of in a negative way as a kid. Um, and I loved, you know, when my mom published Fanny at Chez Panisse, I was like eight or nine and all these young readers would send me letters. And so I had all these pen pals. And at that point it was a very, it was a rather sweet, you know, sort of level of awareness of, I loved how you answered all of them too. I, I you know, I was really like devoted, devoted pen pal. Yeah. So we're going to take a couple questions from the audience in another minute. So please get your questions in. But before we go to that, I wanted to ask you, so if Always Home was made into a movie, who would play each of you? Who do you want to play each of you? Oh, my God. What a question. I have not considered that for a moment. But now I want the young actor from Minari to play me. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good choice. Alice, how about you? I don't know. I guess I want Jane Fonda. (laughs) Oh, that would be really good. (laughs) Um, It's it's really hard. Uh, Who do you think, Fanny? I wouldn't mind having Kate Blanchett for a mom. (laughs) (laughs) I think we could all go for that. (laughs) So let me ask you this, which is... Is there anything that one of you loves to eat that the other does not? I I will start by saying that um, when I was when I was with my mom these many months over the pandemic, you know, we'd sort of share the cooking and um, trade off. Usually, we we cook together, but there would also be just nights where I would spearhead something and then my mom would cook. And, um, and my mom would develop this hilarious shorthand when she was not, it was not that she disliked it per se, but it wasn't exactly up her street. She would say, I respect your ambition, which I loved and which I almost feel like is the next, you know, book some, some years on just like, I respect your ambition. Um, but I, you know, I cook, um, with a lot of herbs and a lot of spice. I like, I like chili a lot more than my mom. Like I will put bird's eye chilies and serrano chilies and just tons of heat into just about anything I can get away with, which is absolutely an artifact of my father's, my upbringing by my father who can just pop, you know, habaneras. And, um, and so there's, there's that. And I think my mom sort of limit is the like little piment d'espelette that like French, really delicious um red chili flake that is not particularly spicy um but yeah i cook with i mean i think by the end though mom you can speak to this just the the things that i feel like were takeaways in a positive way from my cooking with you for a year want to weigh in alice is there anything that you love to eat that fanny just doesn't want anything to do with (laughs) Not not really. She's ready to eat just about anything. She's much more ambitious than I am. I am, you know, into complete simplicity. And she always, you know, wants more 
herbs on it, more garlic in it. But she convinced me that cooking beans, you really need to to put everything you can imagine into that bean pot while it's uh, while it's cooking after it's soaked overnight you put the beans in she would just go out in the garden pick all the herbs make a bouquet garni out of whatever was there and and carrots and celery and and garlic and onions and all the spices and she convinced me absolutely they were the most delicious beans. And something else that we always use at Chevenis is that squeeze of lemon or a little bit of salt at the end when we're doing our tasters. There's, a lemon is great, but she likes to grate it very finely and put it in, and it just opens up everything from a salad, um, you know, to a piece of fish, and it's a beautiful thing. So we have a couple questions, and tagging on this last one, what are your guilty pleasure foods to eat? Thing that you hate to admit that you just can't get enough of. (laughs) But it's yours, Fanny. (laughs) I'm thinking of yours, Mom. (laughs) Which is mine. Well, we are given this absolutely delicious um, sort of caramel corn every Christmas by oh. one of the former chefs oh. at Chafee's. <laughs> she she makes it by hand, you know, every Christmas and deposits a bag of it. And it's just like lethally good. And it's, it's popped corn, like strewn in caramel with like candied pecans and peanuts in it and the right amount of salt. And it is it's really hard to resist. And I mean, my mom has thrown it away outside and then gone out and retrieved it to get it to eat more of it because it is so hauntingly good. So it's like, it's, I think of whenever you, you, if someone asks me that question, that's what I think of for her anyway. Um, I don't, I think in a way my guilty thing would just be, I try really to eat vegetarian most of the time now. Um, and so when I have like the occasional and it's still grass fed, but when I have the steak, you know, there, like maybe once a month or every couple months, I really think of that as my kind of guilty pleasure now. I mean, I really try to eat in a way that is as conscious of, um, climate and its impact as possible. And, and I just find myself more and more wanting to eat vegetarian anyway. Um, so that occasional steak though, which I have not completely eschewed, um, I thankfully have found a really wonderful um, purveyor down here who has all grass-fed beef. So for that occasional steak every few months, um, it's always responsibly raised, but it is something that I still feel a little guilty about. So tagging on to that question, somebody um, is asking, how has your move, Fanny, to Los Angeles impacted your relationship with your mom? Has it changed in any ways? made it easier, harder? Well, you know, I never expected moving in with her um, this last year. I mean, of course, I think a lot of people adopted their plans um, with the pandemic in a way that they absolutely hadn't foreseen. You know, I've been living in in a one-bedroom apartment in San Francisco, so I'm not seeing her, you know, every day until... So this, in a way, this last year was a very, very exceptional year 
um, in terms of what it was like to be two adults, you know, living and sharing a space together. It was a very different experience than I had, you know, up until I was 18. And then I went to college on the East Coast, and then I moved to England for 11 years, where I really saw my mom very infrequently, except for when she would visit Europe. So in a way, LA is um, a kind of wonderful, happy medium, because I can hop in the car like it will do uh, this weekend and go visit her and be there for a week, you know, every so often. And she can come visit, as she did last week. So we've already seen each other quite a bit since I moved down here. Um but I, you know, I, I think, you know, we'll see. I, I really love being in LA. It feels like a great compromise for me because I also still work in the arts and to be in a city that has a very vibrant art world um, and also an incredible food world and incredible farmer's markets. I mean, it's it's been a joy to discover what's available down here. Just a couple, just a couple hundred miles down south and you suddenly have passion fruit, you know, at every other stall, which is just my... Um, Yes, my absolute dream. <laughs> so, but at the same time, to still be close enough that I don't feel like I can just I can still get home. Well, I may do a project in Los Angeles at the Hammer Museum. Is that an excuse for you to spend more time with Fanny? Well, I was trying to decide <laughs> which came first, but it's. Um, a very important project connected to UCLA, and I'm very involved in the big picture of the University of California and food and how they could really lead the state and pull K through 12 with them. And so I, I consider that a very important place to focus um, food. And uh, and I have a lot of friends who need jobs, wonderful friends. And so maybe it could really work out well. And I'll have to come down to L.A. all the time and uh, see Fanny when I'm there. She'll have a Chez down there. <laughs> so another person asks, what is your all-time favorite meal to enjoy? Now, the first thing that came to my mind was a bouillabaisse cooked over the wood fire. It's definitely fire for me. Something that's cooked outside or in the fireplace. I'm just, uh, I love that. Those aromas, whether it's a fish soup or whether it's something that's you know, a chicken that's grilled. And Fanny? My sort of Achilles heel, which I acknowledge in the book, is uh, is lobster. So Oh, yes. Then there, there is, which I have, I will say, very infrequently. Like, I can't even remember the last time I had a lobster. However, actually, no, that's not true. We had a little West Coast lobster in our very special Osishi bento box at New Year's, but it's not something I eat often. But there is this entire story devoted to this one lobster salad that um, we ate in France at the end of a very difficult journey that involved some some car sickness. And that that salad, which was um, prepared by 
this wonderful French chef who had this Michelin starred restaurant. And I was nine years old at the time, made this salad according to something that um, my mom had to describe to him because I, he asked me what I wanted to eat. And I, I asked uh, for a sort of Chez Panisse style lobster salad, which is my ideal meal, I think, is beautiful greens, you know, little cherry tomatoes, a very sort of zesty shallotty vinaigrette, and just a little bit of lobster strewn in there. I realize it's, um, it's, it feels a little special for some, but it's just my sort of, it's probably my last meal if I had to choose one. So I have to say I'm surprised by it's not Dungeness crab, but lobster. <laughs> I know. I love Dungeness crab. I do. I do. I do. I don't know how lobster crept into the sort of my consciousness. I'm sure it's because I was a restaurant kid and they did, they did crop up on the menu, but I always loved the ritual, I think, more than anything of opening, of, you know, cracking it and preparing it and everything that it required and getting to take the little legs and sucking on them like a straw, like, you know, just having that kind of real effort put in and then the reward of, of getting to eat the, the delicious sweet flesh. So since we're all getting hungry listening to this, <laughs> we wanted to ask you to share a recipe, one of your favorites, and if you could tell us what it is and why this is so meaningful to you. Um, well, I thought a nice one to talk about would be coming home pasta, because um, I feel like that's the recipe that if there's been, if I can describe any recipe in the book as having had a slightly viral life, it was this one um, over the course of the pandemic, because I think it, it spoke to how much you can do with, with very little, actually, and how you can make something really delicious and really nourishing um, out of just a few sort of very spare ingredients. Um, and I remember at the beginning of the pandemic a year ago, just people, we were in a real panic around what we could provision with and how much we had in our cupboards. And, you know, were we going to have any greens? I mean, I remember steaming just vats of kale and, and freezing it, thinking like we wouldn't have access to fresh greens. And, um, and this pasta requires absolutely nothing. It's, um, you know, it's what we would prepare for ourselves when my mom and I and, and my father too. And when we come back from long trips and there's just next to nothing in the refrigerator and next to nothing in the pantry. Um, and this was um, a kind of uh, very dependable, beloved uh, family recipe. So it's, um, it's essentially kind of a white puttanesca, wouldn't you agree, mom? Yeah. And you just, <clears throat> you start by locating some hopefully decent garlic. So with that has enough like firm, you still need the cloves to have a kind of firmness to them and not have gone off. But if you have a couple of good cloves of garlic, um, you saute those in some, in some olive oil and then you kind of poke around for other things. So usually capers we would keep in the fridge under salt and there would usually be a little tin of anchovies or some salted anchovies or maybe a jar of them under oil. Um, and my mom keeps a really beautiful garden in the backyard but um, where we cultivate mostly lettuce and herbs. And so there'd always be some herbs out there that you could go get. Some She'd send me out when I was a kid and she was the one making it. She'd send me out uh, to go get parsley, 
so that she could put anchovies into the pan when I was outside and wouldn't know. <laughs> this was the moment to introduce anchovies if we had them, because um, at the time I would really bristle at the inclusion. I now love anchovies, it should be said. Um, so some chopped anchovies um, would go into the garlic as it's beginning to cook. And, um, and then capers too at the beginning will help you can sort of fry them in the oil along with the garlic. And then chili flakes, um, and you just, while that's sort of cooking away and then you don't, you want to be careful not to burn the garlic. You're just boiling a pot of water and whatever pasta you have will do. So sometimes there would be a few pots going because we only had, you know, like enough of spaghetti for one person and a handful of, uh, of some rigatoni for the other person. And so there'd be a kind of makeshift patchwork of dinner, um, but um, you also hopefully have a little like ancient nubbin of Parmesan in your fridge that you can grate in there too. Um, and that would be, that would be what we would kind of put together as our, as the thing that would really satisfy you when you came home. It's so fragrant and it's so flavorful. There's so much umami from the anchovy and the caper and the garlic um, and that, and the cheese at the end. And then Hopefully, hopefully you have a lemon handy so you can zest lemon. As my mom was as my mom was telling earlier, zested lemon zest um, over top and some fresh parsley or oregano or um, or even a little uh, savory is nice in there too. Um, and that um, is something that people have written me so much over this last year and just said, like, they make coming home pasta at least once a week, or it's the recipe that they had been looking for and never quite knew how to do the easiest pasta recipe, but somehow the, this one that really feels sort of deeply nourishing. Well, I love that it's uh, it's something you can make with anything in the fridge and out of the pantry, especially during this time when we've all been so stuck at home and limiting our trips to the grocery store. So we did have one question. Um, actually, I don't remember this part from the book, but why do you guys prefer balsamic-free vinaigrette? <laughs> well, I have to speak to that because I was pretty much trained in Italy that balsamic vinegar was something very, very special. It's, I mean, the way that it was made, it's why it's so expensive. And you drizzled it over some Parmesan cheese. But it was never, ever really in a vinaigrette. And I think it, be, it came part of a vinaigrette because it is sweet, um, vinegary taste. And I think Americans wanted, uh, you know, a sweet salad dressing. And so it became omnipresent. And for me, the thing that I love about salad is that it, it that it's sort of cleansing your palate, that it's not weighting it down with sweetness. And I've always been kind of offended by the idea of putting balsamic in a salad. But also... Also because balsamic wasn't true balsamic for the most part. Yeah, you know, it wasn't true. what oh, yes. what began to be marketed in the US especially yeah. and now I mean also in Italy on every bistro table yeah. to satisfy tourists was essentially a kind of grape juice, like barely ate, you know, it was 
very low acidity and often with added sugar and it was not aged. So it didn't have the quality of, of a balsamic that actually spends time in barrel where it takes on a lot more nuance of flavor and it, and this, and the sugars it's thicker, you know, it has a different viscosity and a different quality. And so it's more, a sort of um, revulsion around that kind of balsamic, you know, the kind of like liquid grape juice, basically, which was marketed as vinegar. Um, but I agree absolutely with my mom that I want a salad always that like cuts through dinner that really gives you this sense of the end of, of a meal, which is also why at the end of Thanksgiving, we always have salad, which is, you know, very untraditional, but which, and which everyone does kind of moan about as it's getting passed around, like, how could we eat another bite? And then this, you know, bright, bitter chicory salad comes, circulates, and it's like the thing that almost feels like a digestivo, like it helps you actually process your meal. It really has that quality of of um, not just on your palate, but also in your in your gut, in a way that kind of um, palliative <laughs> effect. So, do you shake your head then at the American tradition of having salad before the entree as opposed to after, like Europeans do? We do a bit of both. I mean, at the restaurant, we eat it first, but it's usually it's with something, and it. I love salad. I love greens. And I'm thinking of the French meals I had when I was in it first went to France when I was 19. And watercress was always someplace in the meal, whether it was with the main dish or a little watercress salad with walnuts in it or walnut oil. And I, I can't let go of that. It's really part of a a Japanese meal. If it's not first, there's some way it's coming in. <laughs> it always. And I like also to just have that bowl and for special dinners that we have at the restaurant, we'll put a bowl of salad on the table um, right after the entree and people can eat it and sort of uh, use it on the same plate as their main dish and ha very French that was for me. Although it's almost like our bread, you know, it's like you, yes. you have this, you have an extra pot of salad set down so you can mop <laughs> up the juice as opposed to a basket yes. of bread. So since the theme of Silicon Valley Reads this year is all about connecting and this year has been such a challenge for people to do that. I wanted to ask each of you, how have you made a real effort to connect and stay connected to the people who mean so much to you? Do you have advice for other people? Well, I can say that I've had just the greatest um, experience of going out on the front porch and somebody's left me something like a loaf of bread my um my good friend steve sullivan who owns acme bread company he and i have known each other since he was a kid i mean you know back in the 70s he was a busboy at chez panis and we've always communicated in this kind of beautiful way that he wants me to taste a bread that's new or whatever. And 
Right now, he brings me an edible schoolyard loaf of whole, whole grain bread, and he puts it on the front porch, and I just about cry. And he's just been dropping it off as he goes home every day on his bike, and I've been leaving him a little something. But it's such a, a beautiful gift, and I have this tradition of giving people kishu mandarins uh, when they come into season in January and February. And I mail them around to people who live in the snow on the East Coast. And uh, oh, and to Washington, to people I'm trying to influence. And this year, Kishu diplomacy is what it's called. <laughs> we should give them to Congress, right? <laughs> I do. I do. <laughs> and to Supreme Court judges and all the rest. But I, this year I've received the most beautiful messages back of just how much they meant to them to have that gift. And it's just so sweet and little. They like this tiny ones. They peel so easily, but I think that that well, of course, you know that I think food is is about love, and to give somebody something that you've made or you've grown. Many people are making jams and canning foods in different ways and they have extra jars and they want to share them with friends. Um, I love that. And I, I made a victory garden. I dug up the front yard, um, which was flowers and whatnot. And I just planted vegetables and herbs and salad. We were afraid that we wouldn't be able to get salad. And I put a victory garden sign up by it and people just you know, left me little notes, like, I'm going to do this with my front yard, and, and do you mind if I pick something? And, of course, that's why it's there. It is why it's there. And uh, I think that uh, that no matter what it is, that if you make it yourself, particularly, and offer it, 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 is very, very meaningful to both people. And Fanny, what about you? How have you been connecting with your friends and loved ones? I, I'm so used to cooking for dozens of people. And I'm, I mean, I really, like, that's how, that's what people identified with me, was like having dinner parties all the time and having people to my home all the time. And um, it was really nice to have my mom's very big backyard where you could sort of reasonably, you know, have people at a distance um, and make some food. And I did that from time to time, but it was, it was, that was even challenging, not being able to have the same kind of comfort around, you know, touching things and sharing things. It, it, it's been, a, it's been really a, an adjustment. Um, but I think like what my mom is, is saying, I think, you know, one thing I have been doing is cooking with friends on zoom. So I'll make the same, um, 
we'll make the same meal. We'll have like relatively the same ingredients. And I was doing that. And actually still, in fact, I have a date with my, all of my girlfriends in London to make coming home pasta in the next week. Oh, so, um, which of course is like I said, the, one of the easiest things for a lot of different people of different skill levels to make. So, um, that's something that I have, um, really relished, but, um, but it's been, it's been hard just, you know, just keeping tabs on my friends and talking to them as much as I can. I, and, and yeah, and making these dates, these little culinary dates has been um, a way to, to feel really connected. And Alice, how has Chez Panisse weathered this whole past year? Uh, it's been very difficult um, to pivot from an experience of cooking that has always been collaborative and we're all tasting and you know, using our hands freely and and to go to making food and putting it in a box and and just even getting it in the box in a way that is aesthetically pleasing um, is quite a challenge. But I have to say the one thing that has really kept the restaurant alive, if you will, is the fact that we're so rigidly seasonal. So when the tomatoes are over, they're over. They're over. And we're on to the next thing. And so even though we're doing salads in a box and this kind of fruit tart and, and that, it's, it's changing all the time. And it's great for the customers, and it's also great for us. If we didn't have a changing menu and we had to do that, you know, over and over and over again, I think it would be so difficult to keep the chefs engaged and just the spirit of the restaurant alive. And so I love even the flowers that we'd sell at the Sunday Farmer's Market are about the flowers of that moment in time. And so we went from magnolias and now I anticipating tulips. And it's, it's very important. I, I didn't, I've always known that that was important for me in terms of eating food that is completely ripe. You have to eat locally and seasonally, and of course, organically. But I didn't know it would be such a, a force for keeping us psychologically engaged as it has been. It's been Really, really important. And there's when you say the Sunday farmers market, that's actually at the restaurant. So the restaurant very early on started doing farm boxes just to make sure that the farmers were able to get yeah. their produce to consumers because the restaurant was not functioning as a restaurant at the beginning of the pandemic. 
So it was just doing vegetable boxes, which were like the best produce imaginable, but it was coming directly from the, the farmers who provide to Chez Panisse. And that was an imperative for my mom was to make sure that the people upon whom the restaurant depends were still earning a livelihood and having a way to distribute their, their goods. And um, their beautiful produce. And so the the sort of vestige of that as the restaurant transitioned into doing takeout um, is to have this market on Sundays where you can get these beautiful vegetable boxes and all these other products that are from the family of, of purveyors who, um, who sell to Shea. So it's like, that's kind of a, a beautiful feature now it's in the it's right alongside the restaurant in the car in the car park that's right uh, kind of behind the post office there and it's been it's now become we, this really vibrant beautiful market but we can only do that one day a week and so the other days of the week we have a little marketplace in the courtyard in front of the restaurant and we're doing these three course meals and I have one in the other room. I do a lot of tasting, and it's uh, it's so important that I'm giving feedback about everything. But they're spoiling me right now. <laughs> and uh, so people, I think, are are you know things are getting better little by little, but everyone still very much wants to help however they can, the restaurants, the farmers. How would you say is the best way to lend a hand or to help or to help support the people that make our communities so wonderful? Well, definitely to buy at the farmer's market, to go and purchase everything you can there directly at the place um, that, I mean, right at the bakery that's doing the bread that you love. But it's also um, really important uh, to have uh, that feedback from people <laughs> that they liked it. Or, you know, that that's so gratifying to, to hear those uh, get messages back to to uh, the restaurant owner to say, I love that, or even little critical things, but to, to be engaged. We are probably, because we're such a small restaurant, we can't social distance and be open. We have to wait till there aren't any protocols. And that's going to be a while longer. I mean, it may go into next year. We're not sure. And we're going to have to celebrate our 50th birthday virtually. But stay tuned. Oh, no. Are you really? Oh. I don't think there's any way we can can be open. What do you have planned? Well, I'm trying to make a little movie. Uh, uh, sort of the history of the restaurant. Very, not a big movie, but a small movie that sort of begins, um, you know, back there in 1971. So the actual date of the anniversary is? Is August 28th, 1971. So you'll be doing a movie and anything else that people can get excited about? Uh, well, I'm, I'm hoping for... Um, 
I'm hoping for a lot of things, <laughs> but uh, it would be so exciting to to really have the universe just sort of make it full circle for me for the free speech movement back to, you know, really taking food seriously and understanding how important it is for students, not just the K through 12, but the the generation that really can change the world there. And they need to learn about stewardship and community and nourishment and, and take care of the farmers who take care of us. So, Fanny, the last question of the night. Do you have any more books planned? Because you've got a ways to go to catch your mom, you know. I know, a very high bar. Um, not at the moment. Uh, I, I have sort of things, I mean, many, many people have written me little messages and said, when is Everything Tastes Better with Lime coming out? <laughs> Which is a joke cookbook that I refer to in my in my book about that my mom and I are co-writing in theory. Um, although at the end of pandemic, she said, maybe it should be lemon, you know, because we were just using lemons all the time you know, foraging them in the neighborhood. It turns out now that I've walked every street in Berkeley, that there are a lot of lemon trees around around the streets of Berkeley. Well, I guess I have to. Oh, this is a perfect plug for my mom. (laughs) Oh, I have yours here too, Fanny. Oh, thanks, Mom. (laughs) But this is coming out in June, and it's called We Are What We Eat. A slow food manifesto. Oh, that's exciting. That's wonderful. Well, I want to thank you both for making this such a wonderful event. And I know you guys can't give applause over Zoom, but I hope you will give a hand to Fanny and Alice for joining us tonight for this very special event. And thank you to all of you out there for joining us. Thanks again. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.